0: Uh, today I wanted to talk about sowing seed. This thought kind of originated with the idea of bad seeds. I can't help but think there's an old movie called The Bad Seed, and um, about it's about a, a child who is a psychopath, and and uh, there's really no really trying to understand the psychopath. It's just they have a disconnect that that the natural man or woman that has feelings and emotion and a a viable soul that is able to be convicted by God, they don't have that. There's a a complete disconnect. But I thought about uh, sowing seeds and how we have to be careful with the seeds that we sow and we have to be careful about making ourselves available to bad seeds that are sown. Um, A lot of the problems that we have in our lives is because things were planted in our experience and festered and, and grew that really God did not intend to be in our, in our experience. And we really need the, the work of God, the word of God, the spirit of God, the power of God in order to get a lot of that stuff out of our lives. And he has to show us how to uproot those things without really destroying uh, our, our character and our spirits in the process. Uh, it's a It's an inward battle that goes on in in the human heart, and this is why the Church of God has to be organic it It has to be something that is tapped into a source that is able to speak to things that the natural man can neither it can't see it can't understand, and if it can't see it and understand it, it certainly doesn't know how to pay attention to it and minister to it and to extract those things. It really takes the anointing of God. To come and destroy those yokes out of our lives. So my thought is that up until now we have been implanted with all kinds of spiritual seeds, many of which have proven harmful to our personal connection with God and others. It is only the pure word of God that can convert the soul. One of my favorite scriptures is is Psalm 19 and 7, where he says, The word of the word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And any time that word is connect is is tainted with, then that's gonna affect the 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 one that God intended that word to affect. And we we can't be responsible and get our hands bloody with God's word. We have to rightly divide it. When we wrongly divide it, we gotta set it straight and let people know that's not what the scripture meant. And I think that it's the it's the pride in humankind that will you know, we can Know that we made a mistake in an area uh, as concerning God's word. I'm talking about, and we we won't set it straight. We'll just kind of move on from it. But you got to know that that seed was planted in somebody. So so we we have to be responsible stewards of God's word. And and I'm not talking about the clergy. I'm talking about people of God in general. The word of God is not doesn't belong to the priest. Doesn't belong to the Levite. It doesn't belong to the scribe. The Pharisee. He gave his word to the earth. He gave it to the people of the earth, and he gave it to us to study. And we have it in all kinds of different languages. We got all kind of different interpretations of it. So we really have no excuse not to really be able to understand God's word. On top of that, he made it so plain that the simple-minded could understand it so nobody could get a foothold on on the word of god he he gave it to us very plain and simple paul said that the that christ has a simpleness to him it is the simplicity of christ and then he said this thing wasn't done in a corner so we really don't we we thank God for those that have uh time to give all of their time to the study of god's word but It's in there for us to be able to go into and reach. And we got dictionaries and commentaries and all that stuff. And I'm a proponent of of the average child of God doing their own reading. We we can't just spoon feed you. You got to read behind us. Paul had preached to a group called the Bereans. And he said that they were noble because they went behind him in the scriptures and saw if those things were so. Paul appreciated that. Not that they were going to prove them wrong, but that they were really checking out for themselves, is this in the Word of God? And it it, it will behoove us all to do that when we're reading behind somebody. Just don't follow somebody because they sound good, because they got a topic and can run with it and grab the ear and shake the mic. Uh, we we really need God's Word because it is the only thing that can convert the soul. We don't want to come and just have an experience. We want to have a connection with God when we come and worship together and teach the word and and sing songs of Zion. We really want to connect to the Father. So any dilution of the word, any level of tampering with the word will affect God's original intent of that word. Someone might say, well, what about the scripture that says it will accomplish what it was meant to do? Some people uh, finally get there, but you know that you could delay God's plan in somebody's life because you messed with the word because it will take that individual uh, 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 however long to really get it straight and go, oh, that's not what was meant in the Word. Now i got to go and, and and find my footing again and get back on the right path. So I think it was the last retreat. I'm not sure. Um, it'll probably be up on the website uh, within the next couple of months or so. But I dealt with the sower and the seed. I'm not going to go over that lesson. I'm just going to kind of... Uh, summarize it a little bit. And those are, they're they're all found in the Synoptic Gospels. You'll find it in Luke 8, verses 4 through 18. I'm not going to read it. You'll find it in Matthew 13, 1 through 23. And then you'll find it in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 32. So Luke 8, Matthew 13, and Mark 4. And at the end of that parable that he gave them, he told his disciples, take heed how you hear. Not enough of us took heed how we heard. It's one thing to have hearing, but are you really honed in on what a person is saying? Because all of us know in here, there, there are certain ways that people can say something. They could change the inflection of one word, and it'll change the entire meaning of the sentence. It could take a serious comment and take it to sarcasm. Right. All because of the inflection of the voice. So he tells them that that the words that I speak to you, I want you to take extreme care because I'm saying the same words to these over here that I'm saying to you. But guess what? You have a different understanding because of your connection to me than they will ever have. So just because we preach the word doesn't mean that people are always going to grasp it. Sometimes we have to really wait for God to give them that believing heart and to open up their understanding. No matter how good of teachers we are, we cannot open up the understanding. That has to be up to God. So he tells them, take heed how you hear. But in the parable of the sower and the seed, and a lot of people have uh, kind of changed that parable to be about the soil, that parable is not about the soil. It is about God and his word. It's not about me, because we always want to know what the scripture says about me. We really need to hone in and see what the scripture says about him. But in that, we have four points. We have God represented by the sower. We have the word that is represented by the seed. And then we have the four different kinds of hearts that are represented by four different soils. Only one of those soils received and grew from the word of God, 25%. The varying results of the heart we also have. So it's not the word, the word remains unaffected in its essence. So it really wasn't a problem with the seed in that parable. The problem was with the soil, with the hearts of men. Then in Matthew, after he talks about the sower and the seed, he goes into another parable about the good sower. There's a farmer who sowed good seed. This seed is not the word of God. This seed is the people of God that God plants in the earth. And he says that there is the field. The field is not the church. The field is the world. So we always say that the wheats and the tares grow up in church together no he the wheat the the wheat and the tares grow up in the world together in the church he only has wheat he doesn't have tares, so the ones like like the the apostle said those that we thought were with us but left us, he said they were never of us. they were tares they were in our midst but Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands assured. The Lord knows them that are his. So just because they're in our midst, they know how to shout like us. They know how to praise the Lord like us, but they don't really know how to, to connect with God. They, he doesn't know them. They're workers of iniquity. So in the world, there's a mixture, but in the true church, there's really only one group. He's not confused. We're confused a lot by the evils that go on, but we gotta, we gotta be able to tap into that and allow God to open our eyes. Now in this parable of the farmer and the good seed. And we'll read it. It's in Matthew 13. I meant to grab my iPad. Did I... Let's get Matthew 12:24. Y'all mind if we read a little bit? So he says, I'm reading this from the Living Bible. He says, here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer sowing a good seed in his field. Notice he only sowed good seed. But one night, as he slept, his enemy came and sold thistles among the wheat. And when the crop began to grow, the thistles grew too. The farmer's men came and told him, Sir, the field where you planted that choice seed is full of thistles. Then he says, An enemy has done this, he exclaimed. Shall we put out the thistles, they said? Shall we pull them out? No, he replied. You'll hurt the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest, and I will tell the reapers to sort out the thistles and burn them and put the wheat in the barn. He explains the parable to them and says, Number one, the field is the world, the seed is the saint, child of God, the enemy is the devil, and the wheat, I mean, the, I'm sorry, the tares or the thistles are the children of the devil. Now, John tells us, that he that had this hope in him would purify himself, even as he is pure. And because of the way we respond to the mercy of God with our lifestyle and with our way of worship and the things that we do for God on behalf of his planet, earth, he said, in this, the children of God are manifest, so are the children of the devil. So we can tell by our actions who is a child of God, who is a child of the devil. It isn't about what you call yourself. It is about how you live. It is about are you doing what Christ left us down here to do? The word holiness you uh, heard me deal with before, be ye holy for I am holy, that's really not a label that we call like we have labeled it as this is a holiness church. That's really not the label that he wanted. Holy means that you're separated out to do what I told you to do. And that, that holiness is going to look different for everybody. I'm not talking about some can sin and some can't. I'm saying that what God has separated you out in life for assignment to touch other people's lives, if you're not doing that, you've in short of your holiness for God because he set you apart to touch that life. And until that's done, we're missing the mark, which is sin. So the, the enemy planted bad, evil, corrupt seed, and the field workers... They notice the bad seed. He didn't say that you won't know who the bad seed is. He didn't say that how can you tell the difference between a wheat and a tear? There is a difference. Master, we, we see the difference. We see that there's two things growing here together. Now, sometimes we, we think that the thistle don't grow, but the tear grows. It grows. It grows and it looks like kind of like a wheat. It looks like it. This is why we got to be vigilant. One of my main prayers forever has been, Lord, discernment. Please open my eyes so I can see who is around. Jesus knew who Judas Iscariot was. Judas Iscariot didn't take him by surprise. He told him the night before he he betrayed him, one of y'all is a devil, they didn't know who the devil was. The other 12 going around said, is it me? Lord, is it me? Judas knew who it was. But the other 12, because they don't, we, sometimes we, we claim to know what's in our heart. See, we wouldn't have been like the, 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 ele- the other 11 beside Judas. We would have been like, I know it ain't me. I know it ain't me. I'm saved. I, the master ain't talking to me. I'm not the devil. But they knew that he had such insight to their spirits that he could tell, and when he has that much insight, we should always question our motives. We should always ask God, Lord, is it, is it me? When you're in a, in a situation uh, with individuals and, and you place all the blame on them, you need to stop and say, Lord, what is my role in this? What, what, what have I contributed to this situation? Because a lot of times we respond in anger, we respond in haste, we respond in frustration, we lash out, we don't keep our cool. Sometimes we lose it. That's just our human nature. Jesus lost his temper. He, whooped, he, he, he forcibly put them out of the church, whipped them out of there. See, we think fighting in the church started with us in the 20th century. Jesus was fighting in the temple. Put him out. He said, you're messing with my plan here. So to preserve the integrity and the fullness of his good crop, the farmer allowed the bad seed to grow with the good seed. Lord, you're going to allow this devil to plant his seed, put his child alongside me, and I'm your child, And you're going to allow the devil's child to grow with me. God said, yes, I am. How long, Lord, are you going to let the devil's child stay in my life? He said, until the rapture. You are going to be dealing with devils until the rapture. Because his purpose for coming was to make an open show of the devil. His purpose in coming was to prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, not in their absence. It's no good for the enemy not to see you feast before God. He wants to place you right there in the enemy's eyesight and tell you, like he told Job, you could do what you want with them, but they won't deny me. Some of us will try to convince God that, Lord, I'm not really worthy of that credit from you. You just don't know. My faith is shaky right now. But God knows your faith. And he won't allow you to be tempted above your ability. We changed that scripture to say he won't put more on you than you can bear. That's not the scripture. The scripture says he won't allow you to be tempted above your ability. But the purpose of the test is that you may be able to bear it. That's the purpose of it. And at the end, only the reapers are going to be the ones to separate the wheat from the tares. The, weepers, he, the, the reapers, he says, are the angels that are going to come at the end time and separate out of the world those that belong to God and those that belong to the devil. So. Leviticus 19 and 19 says, obey my laws. Do not mate your cattle with a different kind. And here's the key that I want to pick up. Don't sow your field with two kinds of seed. That means don't try to eat what God has given you and eat what the devil is dishing out to. Some of you know you could go to a soul food restaurant and you could tell whether those green beans came out of the can or not. Or if if, if they were like your grandmamas who went out to the field and picked them fresh, came home and washed them, you could tell the difference. God is expecting us to know the difference on what we're supposed to be taking into our spirits. Don't sow your field with two kinds of seed. Deuteronomy 22 and 9. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. So a lot of the issues that we're having is because things have been planted and we willingly received it. And the premise of this lesson and one reason I really struggle with this is because my original title to this was bad seeds because... I think I'm going to, in a series kind of way, go through all of the things that we have taught in Christianity over the years that are bad. They're taught wrong. They're not really divided. We don't allow scriptures to stand on their own. We believe that we can help God by adding to his word and trying to explain a little better because the Bible wasn't clear enough. And it has a lot of people in trouble. We we have this with with a lot of different topics that really perplex our souls, and it affects our relationships not only with others, but with God also. So um, those lessons will probably be be in the future. So we can't mingle our seed. Number two, we can't have this 21st century idea of, you know, we want to be able to present something that is in a package. And in, in order to do that, Like, I can't understand why it takes like two months for a carton of milk to spoil now. I remember being a kid, and if you didn't drink that milk in a couple of days, that milk would curd and spoil. But now because of additives and preservatives, things that we put in milk that really affect the quality of what it is supposed to do to your body, it's harming us now. We wonder why we got so many cancers, but it's all because these companies have realized if we can lengthen the shelf life of these products, we can make them in bulk, ship them out to the world, really don't have to worry about it, it'll just be money coming in. Somebody call it mailbox money. It won't go bad on the shelves. They can buy, that, that milk can sit on the shelf for three weeks rather than two days now. So in Revelation 22 and 18, he says, I give fair warning to all who hear the words of prophecy of this book. If you add to the words of this prophecy, God will add to your life the disasters written in this book. If you subtract from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will subtract your part from the tree of life and the holy city that are written in this book. Deuteronomy 4 and 2. Do not add other laws or subtract from these. Just obey them, for they are from the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 12 and 32. Obey all the commandments I give you. Do not add to or subtract from them. Proverbs 30 and 5. Every word of God proves true. He defends all who come to him for protection. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. A liar is that extremely detestable, abominable sin that God vehemently hates. He becomes a fire against liars because a lie is really at the root of most sin. God, he got, God didn't t- did he tell you that you shouldn't eat of every tree? Not every tree. Put one word in there. A liar. Which the Bible says all of them have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Liars. Which is the opposite of the essence and the nature of God. He is called the truth. When we add to his word, we become liars. It doesn't matter if you meant it in goodwill. It doesn't matter if you were just trying to do good. If we add to it, he's going to add the plagues. It may not happen overnight, but know that his word stands forever. This I take extremely serious. Why? Because the seeds that were planted in my spirit I go out and repeat those things because I believe grandma said it. Grandma said the Bible said this. My daddy taught me that the Bible said this, that, or the other. My mama used to quote this scripture all the time and you find out it's not in the book. That that kind of action receives a, a very serious penalty from God. I really believe that. We are commended to let every man be a lie and let God be true. But the the key word is let. God is not going to force this on us. It is up to us to go and research whether these things are so or not. And if they're not, we simply just don't believe it. Why? Because the conversion of my soul depends on the purity of the word that I hear preached to my soul whether it come from my husband, my spouse, my, my, my wife, my, my child, my parent, my, my pastor, whoever's sharing the word of God with me, if it's going to have an effect, a positive effect on me, it needs to be left in its purity. Only someone who speaks pure truth can be considered a true servant of God. Any mixture of lies renders us incapable of claiming to be God's servant. You can't, be a, you can't be a servant of truth if you're preaching lies, if you're teaching lies, if you're promoting lies. I, I was reading, uh, I forgot one of, one of the scriptures that I was reading this week. Oh, as a tree falleth, that's the way it lieth. I've been hearing that preach for years. Yeah, we, 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 and we really preach it at funerals, you know. As a tree falling, that's the way it li- But it wasn't really even preached in the context of a person dying and and being in whatever state they die in. They That's certainly a biblical truth, but that scripture didn't apply to that. So we got to keep scriptures in the context of what the writer put them in. We just can't pick and choose. Cause we really could take all the scriptures we want and prove a, a point that God never even thought of Presenting to us. We see it all day long, the, pro- the whole prosperity message. They use scriptures. The devil used the same scriptures that we use to trick us. But it plants his seed. So we live in a day, right, where we, we, we have the stock market. We have this thing to where we put our money in. We have savings account. We have bonds. We have all these things. And we expect what's called a return on investment. That if I put this in, a a certain amount of time will lapse, some short term, some long term. And I'm going to get out of this more than I put in. It's a good concept. So because of this, now I don't want us to, because of the scriptures that I just read, I don't want us to now shut our mouths. It's just warning for us to really dig into the word of God. Find out what is God saying to me then what does God want me to do with this? Who does he want me to share this with and to go on doing it? Now, we must plant. We can't not plant because these warnings are here. That's not the goal of what's written. The first commandment given to creation, Genesis chapter one, is for each one to create after its own kind. One can only produce what one is, and hence This is why it's so important of ridding ourselves of all the bad seed planted into us. I can't tell you how many young men have been told by their mother, not even just young men, young women too, you ain't never going to be nothing. You're going to be just like your granddaddy. You're going to be just like your granddaddy. Those things are planted in their mind. And then it plants into them, well, this is what they expect from me anyway. So I might as well just go on and just fulfill what their expectations are. We cannot allow fear to prevent us from sowing our seed. Now, in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, the seed can be a number of things. Number one, we we sow our time as seed. We give of ourselves. Natalie taught that earlier, that when someone is hurting, we don't just scoot them off to somebody else. But we invest our time, our efforts. it, It may be your money. Everybody doesn't have the same things to invest. But if we all pull together, I can assure you that everybody in the body of Christ will receive what they need, both naturally, physically, and spiritually. This is how the first church operated. They came and brought everything and they had all things common. Nobody lacked anything. They didn't have this hierarchy of the haves and the have-nots and the, uh, well, you dropped out of school so you don't deserve nothing, no way. They didn't live like that. They brought their things together. So they had to plant into each other's lives the things that God had given them. Ecclesiastes 11 and 4 says, if you wait for perfect conditions... You will never get anything done. You'll never get anything done. Verse 6 says, keep on sowing your seed, for you never know which will grow. Perhaps it all will. So some of us have probably gotten to the place where we've just thrown up our hands and said, you know what? I'm just done. I'm not going to say nothing to nobody. I'm just going to sit over here and mind my business and just get what's for me. Sometimes trials in life can get you to that corner. I'm here to encourage you. Please don't stay there. Please continue to sow your seed. It is going to be where you are going to reap what you sowed. Like Pina said earlier, learn to do good. Study it. Just because people don't receive it, people abuse it, people misuse it. They did it to Jesus. They only wanted it. some. He said they're only following me for the fish and the loaves. They only want my miracles. Some of us want to know him in the pardon of their sin, but not in the power of the resurrection. They don't want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. We only want to know him, you know, as he got up. I want that power. I want to lay hands on the sick. But do you want that, what she talked about earlier, where you're going to have to go through some stuff? So with that, let's read through Ecclesiastes 11. I read verse 4 and 6, but there's some stuff in here that the wise man gives us. A lot of us are familiar with chapter 12, but 11 really is a precursor, actually in a continuation of verse number, I mean, chapter 11. In fact, verse 1 of 12 is continuing on the thought of the last verse of chapter 11. But I only really have time to deal with chapter 11 right now. So he says, give generously for your gifts will return to you later. Divide your gifts among many. For in the days ahead, you yourself may need much help. In other words, don't centralize your... One of the, 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 the key things for investors is they say you got to diversify. Don't, don't stick all your money in technology. Why? Because every industry, even in the natural realm, has a bubble. It only goes so far, then it pops, then it moves on to the next industry. If you have all your money in that one thing... God help you when the bubble pops. So he's telling us, don't invest all, because we have our favorite things. We got our favorite people. We got our favorite ministries. We got our our, our favorite person. You know, I'm just going to deal with this one person. He said, go ahead and put your seed. In fact, the King James Version says seven, no, eight places. And, and actually, he's talking about kind of a global thing here to where if one fails, you still got something working over here. If that one fails, you still got something working over here. Because if, if you put all your trust in man and put all of your resources into one, I'm not talking about God, I'm talking about people now. We're talking about people ministry, how we interact with one another, how we minister to one another, how we uh, converse and communicate with one another. Diversify your seed. Verse three. When the clouds are heavy, the rains come down, and when the tree falls, here's that verse, whether south or north, the die is cast, for there it lies. What he's saying in this verse is you really can't control anything in life. You can't control the wind. You can't control natural calamities that come. That's why he tells him, if you wait for perfect conditions, the sower would never sow if he's waiting for the opportune moment. How many have sat there and just waited for the perfect time to to do something and found yourself, you never pulled the trigger? 2015, even it's like that old double dust thing where we, some never jumped in. And the ones turning the rope, they just arms tired. Because you're trying to time it right, and you're trying... The thing is, we think we have more control than we really do, because we're really not just trusting God. We really have to just trust that, like he said, you will reap if you sow. That's Bible principle. It never fails. Some people don't believe. Some people are are sowing some evil seeds and don't believe they're going to reap evil. But look what happens. We allow that evil to... Stop us from planting any good. And then they've planted all their evil. So we can't reap any good, but they're going to reap evil, but they haven't seen it yet. And the Bible says that because justice is not poured out on the ungodly right away, they believe, he said, it's in their heart to fully get set in them. It gives them confidence because, well, God ain't punished me yet, so I'm going to just keep on doing what I'm doing. And then the good people sit back and say, well, it looks like the evil is winning, so I'm just not going to plant no seed. God put us here. He gave us authority. He gave us power. We have to operate in it. We can't sit and worry about the calamities and which way the wind. Verse number four, if you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. Verse five, God's ways are as mysterious as the pathway of the wind And as the manner in which a human spirit is infused into the little body of a baby while it is yet in his mother's womb. So he says that when you sit and try to calculate and understand everything before you invest yourself. He says this is just as silly as trying to wonder when the spirit enters a baby in the womb. Or trying to track where the wind is coming from and where it's going to. Because the minute you find out it, guess what? It's changed course. Verse six. Keep on sowing your seed for you never know which will grow. Perhaps it all will. It is a wonderful thing to be alive. If a person lives to be very old, let him rejoice in every day of life, but let him also remember that eternity is far longer and that every, everything down here is futile in comparison. Young man, he talks to the youth. It's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Now, some of us, have I've never met more young people that act like they're 60 in my life. God has in his word, that he has set a section of our lives for a, a young person to act like a young person. That's God's design. And the problem with us is that, you know, we we want to act, we want young people that are 16, 17, 18, 21, young in college, to have the knowledge, the wisdom, and the behavior of someone that's 50 and 60 and been through life and experienced it all. But he says, no. He says, enjoy that young part of your life. But don't don't get loose and fancy free with it, though. I think that's uh, another fear we have in the word that if we really teach it the way it, it's said, we'll, we'll give people a license to do anything. But that's that's really not what the word is saying. And this is why we add to and we start adding our own rules. And Jesus said of the Pharisees, the scribes and, and the and the public, I mean, in the Levites, he said, you've taken my law, which I gave you 10 commandments And I believe the the count is somewhere of all the laws of the Old Testament that it grew from 10 to 623, I think is the number. Where did the other 613 come from? He told them, he said, you have put burdens on the people. And not only have you put burdens on them, but you yourself don't even follow the rules you made. Because they're so crazy, there's no way you would even follow them. This is the problem they have with Jesus, that everything that he did was wrong. When he had to tell them, I'm the one that gave the law. You've taken my law, you've added to it, and you're going to try to tell the writer of the law what it really meant. And that's really what we're doing today. We're trying to tell God, no, you really didn't mean that. What you really need is we need to put 10 amendments to this so we could better explain what you meant. No, you put it out there. And the person either believes it and receives it, moves with it, lives with it, and lives by it, and accepts it, or they don't. See, this is too simple, because then it takes a lot of control away. Oh, I wish I had my lesson. I've I read a, um, that's tomorrow's lesson, where uh, one of the writers of one of the UPC books, he talks about the, what religion does to us, and how it can never operate under the Spirit of God, because the number one thing with religion is that it 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 must control you but God isn't about control God is about leading and guiding all right so I want to read this from one of my commentaries and this is really dealing with verse four of this if you wait for perfect conditions you will never get anything done now we probably will all find ourselves in this I, I know I certainly have because I've had pro- uh, areas in my life where I really want to throw my hands up in situations and say, you know what, forget it. I'm backing out. I'm done. I don't have time for this. I'm moving on. You know how we get, right? All right. <laughs> so this is written by a theologian called Canon Lydon. And this is verse 4. And what he deals with is he breaks down the optimist versus the pessimist versus the Christian view that we should have Concerning sowing our seed in life. So optimism and pessimism versus Christianity. Here we have a rule or principle of life and conduct which corresponds with, but which is more important than the rules of good farming. So this parable is not about farming. He's really not dealing with farming here. We are not to spend the brief day of life in wistful surveying those evil conditions or those calamities which surround our existence. We are to go forward. We are to do the utmost in and to make the best of that certain duty in that state of life to which it has pleased God to call us. One thing the Bible said about David is that he ministered to his own generation. So there are two main ways of looking at human life and its surrounding liabilities. First of all, there is what is called optimism. It is a production of the temperament which refuses to see in earthly human existence anything but sunshine. It's all you see. It's just sunshine and flowers. Ain't no negativity. I block all negativity out. I'm thinking on those things that are positive of good report. Think on these things. That's the optimist. This kind of optimism draws a veil over the miseries, the poverty, and the pain. It draws its curtains and pokes up its fire. It has no patience with people who have human sorrows. And when they are forced on their attention... It protests with a good-natured smile. I know you're hurting, but optimism says, oh, things do not look so gloomy as some people think. It ain't that bad. It could be worse. That's what we say, right? It could be worse. The objection to this optimistic theory is that It is inconsistent with hard facts. It only belongs to the man who has good health, fair abilities, and sufficient income. But for the immense majority of human beings, the language of optimism can never sound other than heart deceiving. We listen to those people. and We're like, what world are you living in? I don't know what it's like to have a a, a Lexus in the driveway full of gas all the time. And, you know, I'm laid off right now. So there's this disconnect when it comes to our our fellow man, our brothers and sisters that we're supposed to be looking out for. And we think and and some of us forget when we had that bucket that barely made it to that we were praying that it didn't stop at the light. We forget that when we get blessed with a Mercedes 20 years down the line. Now we don't want nobody to ride with us. Back then, we would pick anybody up in our jalopy. Most of us probably wanted to take a lot of people with us so we can have more arm power when it broke down so we could all push. So the pessimist, the opposite estimate of human existence claims a hearing. We have, all of us, met with people who make a point of looking at everything on the darkest side, who fondle jealousy and prize their groanings, who as if under some strange pressure of conscience do not allow themselves to recognize the happier features of their life or of the circumstances in which God has placed them. This group here, everything's doom and gloom. There's nothing good in anybody. Everybody's wrong but me. For them, the sun never shines. The flowers never open. The face of man never smiles. They see everything through a thick atmosphere of depression and gloom. The pessimist has no eye for the creative or the recuperative powers of nature. He lingers over his tendency to corruption and decay. He sees before him only death and life, but never life and death. For him, man's history is made up of unprofitable emerging from the sinking back into barbarism without any lasting gains for human progress and improvement. So our, our, our thing is we, we have to have a balancing act between these two ideas. I think I've been on both sides personally. I've been there where, you know, I only wanted to think positive, you know. Well, maybe he really didn't mean it like that. Maybe maybe everybody got that. The, the person that just, like, really? You heard what he said. You know how he meant that. Well, no, I'm just saying that, you know, may, maybe, no. But you have that person. What we got to do, and the other person... You could be the nicest. You look nice today. You see the way she said I look nice? What? She just gave you a compliment. The pessimist. So we we really have to create a balance in that. Why? Because how we view life, our worldview, is going to really dictate how we interact with other people. How we go from this time forward and how we invest our lives, our time, our money, into other things that people need for God. Because God doesn't rain down dollar bills from heaven. God doesn't rain down just, boom, you're happy. He doesn't. He left the ministry to us in the body of Christ. We, we always we say we got the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost was not sent to make you just speak in tongues. The gifts of the Spirit are deployed by the Holy Ghost. And they're for the edification of the body of Christ. So, here's the balance. One of the incidental proofs of the divine greatness of Christianity is to be found in its attitude toward these two opposing estimates of human life. For the religion of Christ is by turns pessimist and optimist. Christianity quarrels not with the principle of these two ways of looking at life, but with the misapplication of it. It's when you can't find that balance. And the Bible is so much about balance. It's about finding equilibrium. Don't go so far to the right. Don't go so far to the left. Stay centered, focused. This is the problem they had. Well, well Jesus, you're supposed to just come and eat with the, with the priest. Why are you over there with the public and in the center? Priests don't deal with those kind of people. That's, those are dirty people. Why, why, are you with the, why are you talking to a Samaritan? We, we don't deal like that. But he said, I, I'm finding a balance. I know how to deal with you and love you. And at the same time, I know how to deal with, the, with the, what you call the public and the sinner and deal with them. And guess what? One day when, when I get up from the grave, all of y'all going to be equal. So Paul is a pessimist in his description of the state of the prospects of the heathen world at the beginning of his first epistle to the Romans. But who more optimist than he, who more buoyantly confident in the splendid destinies reserved for the servants of Christ than this same apostle when he described the effects working in the soul and the working of the spirit of life. So in his epistle to the Romans or of our incorporation with the Redeemer in the epistle of the Colossians and the Ephesians with human nature left to itself, he could hope for nothing. But with human nature redeemed and invigorated by Jesus Christ, our Lord, he could despair of nothing. Of the one, he says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Paul says, I'm no good. When I would do good, he was always present. Who shall deliver me from the body? I'm just, he said, woe is me. But at the same time, on the other hand, he says in another place, I could do all things through Christ that strengthens me. So we have a balance of his pessimism and his optimism being joined in the reality of Christ that we are nothing but mere humans, that we're going to face calamities, that we're going to have a a natural human reaction to them, and that God has somebody in place for us to help us get through this thing in the body of Christ. So the Christian who regards the clouds... Who looks long and wistfully at evils or at the threatenings of evil, which are beyond his power to remove or to correct, shall not reap the harvest of joy or work which lies already to his hand. For so regarding the clouds takes time and thought and effort. We don't want to put the time in. We don't want to put the thought into it. We don't want to put the effort into it. This is just too much for me to try to break it all down. But God is saying but you want to reap. And and sometimes we really don't see the reaping of the harvest. The Bible talks about Christ who says that he will reap that which he had not planted in the book of Isaiah. What does that mean? Because when he got up from the grave, he showed himself for 40 days. He went to heaven, but he left the planting to the church and when he comes and reaps, he's going to reap what you sold. But what is he going to do when he comes back and finds out that you got a whole barnyard full of seed that you never planted because the wind was blowing, because trees are falling all around, because there's tornadoes in my experience that I, I just, I, I'm just afraid, I'm scared that if I plant the seed, it's so precious that the wind's going to carry it away. He said, no, even if it gets carried away, it's going to fall into the ground somewhere. And eventually, the waters of life is going to water that thing, and it's going to grow. You may not see it, but guess what? It grows. As much as we try to keep our lawns nice and green, guess what? Those weeds come up. And every three or four months, you got to go out and get some weed killer and put it in the seed with the grass. And when you put that down, it, it kills the grass with it, but then you got to put some fertilizer on the grass again so the grass can grow. This is why he says, just let them grow together. Don't worry about it. Just let the water fall. They'll grow together. Let them devils grow. Don't be intimidated by the devils. Just know that God has placed a table before you in the presence of your enemy. And just let the devil watch you eat the meal that God has prepared for you. God told Saul, I rejected you from being king. He didn't kill Saul right away. He let Saul live. After he told Saul, I don't hear you anymore. Don't even pray to me because I'm not listening. He told the prophet, go down to Jesse's house and find my next king. Found David. Guess what David did? He didn't kill Saul when he found David. Saul lived. What did he do? God put Saul in David's kingdom, divinely set up David slaying Goliath to where Saul could say, all right, bring that boy in my kingdom. Set him at what Saul thought was his table, but actually it was David's table by then. end. May Saul feed David. It was David's kingdom while he was so-called a servant. Sometimes we think that just because we're serving, we don't feel like a king. It's your table. And like we were talking about when, when to let things go. David had to come to that place. When do I let Saul? Because David loved Saul. David never spoke evil of Saul, knowing that God had rejected Saul as king. But as long as he was in the position that God had authorized, he said, I'm going to serve my king. And every battle that David fought, he had a 100% victory rate. But when it was time for Saul to die, David wanted to fight. God told David, do not fight this battle. God can keep your victory intact while getting his plan done. Because if David would have fought that battle, he would have lost it anyway because God had designed that battle to kill Saul and his sons. He he kept David's victory record intact, told David, I want you to go around the backside of this battle. This battle is an arranged funeral for me. I'm burying Saul in this battle. See, God knows how to tell you, Leave, leave that alone now because I'm about to work my hand in it. That's when wisdom comes to where you want to get away from certain people. Before the hammer drops. We don't know when God's going to deal with certain people. But when God has had enough, he knows, how to, he knows how to go and get Lot out. He knows how to rapture his church before the hammer falls in the tribulation. He knows how to go and get the children of Israel before he sends the death angel. He knows how to rescue you. And keep you out of harm's way when his judgment falls around the, and, and he starts to, to mess with the weeds in your life. Sometimes we, we lose faith that God even sees what I'm going through. Lord, I just don't really think that you're on my side. There's no way with my natural understanding that you could say you love me and allow me to go through this. That's not love. Why don't you think that's love? Because the bad seed of love has been planted in your soul that says love is always sunshine. You got the pessimistic doctrine of love, but God has tough love sometimes. And it doesn't seem like love, but guess what? In the end, when he reaps out of you and and gets that stuff out of you, all that dross puts you in the fire, then you could come out and say, wow, I didn't even know that was in me. Some of us have been faced with certain situations in our life. I didn't know that I can hate an individual like that. To where I wanted to see them dead. I'm talking real now. Amen. I wanted them to die. Amen. That's human emotion. God doesn't want us to be there, but, but there's a way that he has to get that out of us. Jesus could have called legions of angels when they were crucifying him. He could have easily turned to hate. I don't understand how the word of God tells me to pray for my enemy. They're they doing this to me on a daily basis. Every time they get the opportunity to stab me in the back, they will do it. And you want me to pray for them. Lord, I think I'll just keep that seed in my pocket. I don't think I want to plant that seed. I, don't, I, I think that my seed will be wasted if I pray for that person. That's human emotion. Some of us might be there right now. So there's a fine balance that we have to take as God's children. There are evils enough nearer to the earth than clouds, evils of our own causing, and evils springing from our own heart, evils lying right across our path or by the side of it, and upon these, we cannot bestow too much attention. But the clouds, however much we may gaze at them and wish that they were really rain, or the reverse, the clouds are, after all, out of reach. You can't control the things that happen in your life. That we want, we want control so bad, don't we? We, we think that we could, like a, like a film Hollywood writer, just write our script, you know? And, and, and in Hollywood, they, can film the, they could film the end first. And they, they know, okay, this is my happy ending. This is their, their, and they lived happily ever after scene. Now let's go ahead and, and, and write the rest because it doesn't matter. But do you know that, where, where did Hollywood get that idea from? God has already given us the happy ending. He wrote it first. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the one that wrote it. And in it is your history. When he called you, your journey was already finished, So we think that by spilling our seed everywhere that we're going to waste away. God will replenish you. This is what she talked about earlier with Isaiah. They that wait on the Lord. Because you have trust that he is going to have his expected end in you. You have no fear of moving in life. This is how Jesus could be as nice to Judas as he was to Peter. And as nice to Paul. Because the church didn't want Paul at first. Paul said, man, I got saved. The church said, no, you didn't. (laughs) You that fella that be killing people in the church. And it wasn't until one of God's servants said, you know what? I personally saw the change in Paul's heart. Now I want you all to receive. It took the church a long time to accept Paul. So we must ask God, number one, to show us the seed that he's placed in our hearts and lives. His pure, unadulterated word and plan. Lord, what is your pure plan for me? I know what I've been told. There comes a time in life, and and even some of the Christian writers say that about every, between 50 and 70 years, there's kind of a reset of religion. We're about at that time in human history as as far as especially the United States is concerned. Well, we're in that generation where just just not too long ago we had that great outpouring where there was miracles happening because people were unified and because people were joining together and just investing in one another. And just a few decades later, here we are fighting over the craziest little things, the same group of people. These are our grandparents. Some of us, our parents, were there on Azusa Street. And where they were collectively gathered together, now we fight. What happened to the seed? Because some bad seed got in there, tore up the whole thing. We must ask for discernment and guidance on the bad seeds that have been placed in us and how to nullify them. One of the first ones I'm going to deal with is, is forgiveness, because I am so tired of people wrongly dividing the scriptures on forgiveness. Not that I think I have as much big of a voice, but for those, because it's been causing anguish in some. You're going to tell me that my father that raped me, I got to forgive him. He won't even say what he did was wrong. He still to this day refused to, you you got to forgive because Christ forgave you. Well, how did I forgive? How did I receive that forgiveness from Christ? Did he unwillfully give it to me? No, I had to repent to get it. And if I don't repent, guess what? I will not forgive. We tell people all the time, if you don't repent, your baptism ain't even valid. Whether I dip you or not, God read the heart of repentance. So if that repentance is not met, the forgiveness is not given. So we can't sell people with something as Christ gave you and then we break the command and we, we get away from the, we just did it because it sounded good to quote. Because the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every morning. He woke up this morning angry with the wicked. Then he tells the righteous man that if you leave your righteousness and turn to wickedness, I will forget your righteousness until you repent. That's godly forgiveness. But those are some of the bad seeds that now affect our lives. And we feel bad because we, we think that You know, okay. now and then we tell folks that you you don't forgive them for them. You forgive them so you could release you. Well, you just broke the mold again because Christ didn't forgive us for his sake. He forgave us for our sake. We were the ones going to hell. He wasn't. Last point, we must be able to take command of our optimism and our pessimism and bring them under the obedience of Christ. We can't deter. We, we have to be able to follow God's command. I'm, I'm doing a lesson on uh, compassion. And I have written in studying. and I had forgotten that a long time ago, about a year ago or so, I remember reading, uh, I think it's Exodus chapter 5. I think it's chapter 5, verse 4, where... Moses wanted to meet with God and God gave him instructions I want you to come up alone and he says I'm going to tell you the meaning of my name Mm -hmm. and the meaning of his name was that I have mercy the compassion is the meaning of God's name and he says that whatever we do in word or deed we should do in the name of the Lord But we don't have the compassion of the first century church. We don't have the compassion of the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even in his anger, he had compassion. He held back. He showed mercy. He ministered to those, even though they rejected him. We got to learn how to accept rejection. It's not going to destroy you to be rejected. Plant God's seed in people's lives. It's, it's like that when we say that train up a child in the way you should go. We plant that stuff in them. So we, we have to invest our time in others. I, I think that this is something we, we, I personally, you know, need help with. I'm a recluse. I like being by myself. That's me. I could sit in a dark room at a computer and do my job all day long. In fact, the stuff that I do, they say, that's, that's the job of a recluse. They sit in a dark studio or whatever all day long, just do their work. But God didn't create us to be alone. We got to come out of those shells, come out of those comfort zones. Some of us have been contemplating and, and, and wondering, Lord, should I really make this move and invest this time and energy in this person or this thing or this, whatever it may be. I don't know where everybody is in uh, in the room right now. But I know for myself, God, God has things that He's planted in you. You can't escape, you can wish Him away. Mm-hmm. You know how we do. We reason. Well, if I do this, then I won't do that. And the wind is blowing and the trees are falling. Mm-hmm. And I got the seed, but you know, I don't know if it's gonna grow. It will. And I taught another lesson that dealt with knowing the will of God and how. I got so rebuked because I was one that always thought, because you hear these preachers, right? And they got this, like, verbal conversation, audible going on with God, like Moses, right? It's like, the Lord spoke to me, and I was like, man, I want to talk to God like that. Man, that's, I ain't had that experience. But the Bible says that the way God directs his people is with eye gestures. He looks over there and expects you to go. He said the way the world wants to be led is like a horse bridle. They want want to be driven and directed and and forcibly turned by God. But he says the world is mine. The fullness thereof is the Lord's. He said if I look somewhere and I show compassion on somebody and send your attention that way, I want you to plant your seed there. Don't second guess it. Don't think about, don't try to calculate it because the more you think, the, the more you are liable not to do it. Right. And if we can learn this as young people, we will, learn, we will be able to raise a generation that is not selfish and narcissistic. One that ministers to others. Like, like in, in my daughter's schools, the, the thing that gets me the most excited is when I hear reports of, oh, she's so giving. She always makes sure and checks on other students and makes sure that they're okay. Then it makes you think, Man. We must be doing something right. May not have perfect attendance. (laughs) But the godly things, those seeds are being sown. And the teachers know it. And the school notices it. Because people are watching. Amen. I'm done. (laughs)